you'd open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. In our study of the book of Galatians, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians in terms of stories that Paul is seeking to bring the Galatians back from the brink of deserting not simply the gospel, but the one who called them by the grace of Christ. How does he do this? He chooses to do it in a series of stories. First of all, he tells his story in at least four parts, the story of the gospel, the story of Galatians. The question really is, what is your story? What do you think is going on? That of Abraham, the story of the curse, the story of the promise. And in our text today, he will continue by telling us, or telling the Galatians, two more stories. The first is that of the law, the story of the law. Look, if you would, as I read verses 19 to 25 here in Galatians chapter 3. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had, had been given that would, be, that would impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Therefore, this faith came... Or before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. What we saw last week was the story of the promise. And after the wonderful story of the promise, a question inevitably will come up, and not just for the Galatians, but for us as well, then what was the purpose of the law? If we've got the promise, let's just stick with the promise and, and why do we need to bother with the law? Well, in keeping with the, the theme of story, we find the story of the law, which is actually sort of an intervening story between the promise and the fulfillment that we find in faith. It's a story, if you wish, within a story. Now, many people who have read Paul, not just in Galatians, but in his other letters, um, seem to have assumed that he regarded the law as a bad thing. That it was something that should be done away with, that should be swept aside. And I think this is to completely misunderstand Paul. And if we want to understand what Paul thinks about the law, I think our text today is the place to go to as he writes to the Galatians about it. Verse 19, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. See, a promise was made to Abraham that, in fact, through his seed, salvation for the nations would come. Salvation, to be saved from what? From sins. But sins need to be defined, and the law is given so that we will know what sin, in fact, is. A transgression, if you transgress something, it means that there's something there and you've gone beyond it. You have broken it. Uh, 
you break a law or a commandment, um, you are in violation of that commandment. Well, you can't have a transgression if there is nothing to transgress. And the law is given so that people will come to know, that we will come to know, oh, this is what we have done that is wrong. This is what sin is. It is the breaking of God's law. So from the time of Adam and Eve until the time at Sinai, people sinned, obviously. But there was nothing spelled out in terms of this is what you should not do, or these are things that you should do. It is a law that makes it very clear of what we should do or what we should not do. It is a law that shows us what we have done wrong. And so the purpose of the law is to expose that we are sinners. We are in need of salvation. Otherwise, you, know, you talk about the seed coming and bringing salvation to the nations. What, is, what does that mean? Well, it is a law that shows us that we, in fact, are in need of salvation. And Paul says, he continues in verse number 19, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. This seems a bit tricky. What is it exactly that Paul is, is trying to say? Um, something that is not spelled out perhaps clearly enough for us in the Old Testament. But when God gave the law to Moses, he did so through angels. So the law is given by God through angels to Moses. Now, the fact that angels were involved is mentioned elsewhere. Uh, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, as he's giving his great speech before the Sanhedrin, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 2, for if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So in a way that is not perhaps spelled out Oh, maybe it is. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, near the end of Moses' life, um, he pronounces a blessing on Israel and he says, um, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. Moses, who was there at Sinai when the law is given, he says, listen, God came with myriads, that's ten thousands. He came with his angels and he gave the law to Moses. So Moses went up to Sinai and he received the law and God gave it through the angels to Moses. I think I've mentioned this already in this series, but I find it fascinating that the name of Moses is not mentioned once in the book of Galatians. I think no doubt this would have annoyed the men from Jerusalem. For them, the law of Moses was everything, and for Paul not even to mention Moses, I think would have been uh, a bit, well, they would not have been happy about it. But what about verse number 20? If you look at verse number 20, what does this mean? A mediator, however, does not re represent just one party, but God is one. A mediator, in legal terms, is sort of a third party. You have the party of the first part, the party of the second part, and a mediator is trying to come to uh, an agreement between these two parties. In the story of the law, 
God gives the law to Israel, but he does so through the angels to Moses, and then it is given to Israel. Okay, so what's the point? When God made a promise to Abraham, there was no mediator. God spoke to Abraham and made the promise to him. It was not the same as the law. It was, in fact, a promise. God is one. God is the one making the promise, and he made the promise to Abraham. Abraham was a witness, if you wish, but he was the beneficiary of that promise. He was not a party to it. He was the recipient of God's promise. Abraham had no well, if you wish, there were no requirements of Abraham that he had to do in order for the promise to be fulfilled. The responsibility was God's and God's alone. He made the promise to Abraham, and he would fulfill the promise. On the other hand, with the law, uh, which is a covenant, uh, Israel had obligations to not do what they shouldn't do and to do the things that they should do. There are conditions, but there is no condition in the promise that God made to Abraham. So then verse number 21, the question then arises, well, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? It almost seems like God made this promise to Abraham and the law is something different. Maybe we should just sweep it away. Maybe we should just get rid of it. And Paul's answer is absolutely not. He continues, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. You see, the problem is not the law, the problem is the people. The people to whom it was given could not, did not, would not keep the terms of the law, of the covenant. Israel, after all, is made up of human beings, human beings like us. And like the rest of humanity, they were sinful, they were in need of redemption, and the law cannot, it could not redeem them. But it was there to let them know, in fact, that they were in need of redemption. Um, You may remember in chapter 2, verse number 21, Paul says, righteousness, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If the law is the answer, then there is no need of the promise made to Abraham to be fulfilled. The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. This is in verse number 22 in our text today. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul does this here and and elsewhere, and, and other writers of the New Testament do this. They say the scripture says, and then we start looking through the Old Testament to find a specific reference to what they are speaking, you know, is he quoting a particular passage? And I don't think that he is. What he is, in fact, is referring to Scripture as a whole, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. It is in the law that the law demonstrates time and time again that we are sinners, that we are prisoners of sin. Freedom is only possible through the promise made to Abraham that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, before this faith came, we were being held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. 
This sounds rather drastic and very dark. Being locked up, being in the custody of the law, being held prisoner. But this had a purpose. Verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. At different points in my preaching, I have pointed out difficulties I have with the NIV, uh, the new international version that we use. Um, And this is one of those times. uh, the, The English Standard Version says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Um, what the NIV has put in charge, which seems it's correct, but it's a a bit ambiguous. The word that is used uh, in English comes as pedagogue. That is one, uh, well, usually we think of someone who teaches children. You know, pedagogy is the teaching of children. Um, But that's not what it meant when Paul wrote this. During Paul's day, wealthy families um, would get a slave, a servant, and they would put this person in charge of the children. The parents, it's not that they couldn't be bothered, but they had someone specifically for the task of raising their children. And this servant, this slave, was to teach the child what was right and what was wrong, and what was proper behavior, how to be a good citizen. Um, and so such a person wasn't really a teacher as such. The, the King James has schoolmaster, and I think it gives us the wrong sense. Rather, he was a disciplinarian. Uh, a child would be under his supervision and under his discipline. And in fact, we are told that sometimes the punishment was rather severe. For us, it's hard to wrap our minds around this, that, okay, I'm going to buy someone, or I'm going to hire someone to raise my kids, and this person can beat my kids. He is going to teach them how to be good people. And in fact, this would go up into the late teens. This person is in charge. I mean, we live in a time in which many people frown on parents disciplining their children. Uh, How much more that you would have someone who is not a parent to be in charge of disciplining the child. Um, I remember reading years ago that when the Americans first came to the Philippines, particularly in the mountains where I grew up, uh, it was not the custom to discipline a child. But the the people saw that, in fact, discipline was necessary. And so they would come to the American authorities and say, would you please discipline my child? Will you please spank my child? I can't do it. That's not our custom, but it needs to be done. You need to do it. Well, in Paul's day, you have the guardian who is, in fact, to discipline the person. The guardian is not to be affectionate. It's not to say, come on, be a good boy. The purpose of the guardian was, in fact, to discipline, to chastise, to rebuke the child so that the child would grow up to be the kind of person that the parents would be proud of. If, in fact, a son would grow up to be ill-mannered and disrespectful, it was on the guardian. The blame was on him 
for failing to do the job he was supposed to do. What's this all about? The law is the guardian. The law is telling us this is how you're supposed to live. And the law also has punishment. It has discipline. If you fail to do these things, these are the consequences. So the law is the guardian. God got the law and put it in charge of his people so that they would learn to be the people he had called them to be. The law is, if you wish, always pointing out our mistakes and our failures. But then we come to verse number 25, and it is a transition from the story of the law to the story of faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. At a certain point, the guardian is out of work. When the child becomes a teenager, at a certain point, there is a time at which the guardian is no longer in charge. And Paul says, when faith has come, we are no longer under the guardianship, if you wish, the supervision of the law. What does this mean now that faith has come? The story and these stories is the story of promise. And the promise is made that, in fact, salvation would come to the nations through the seed of Abraham. The law is part of the intervening story between Abraham and the coming of Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, and we have seen the faithfulness of Jesus is the basis of our salvation, then in fact the guardianship is no longer necessary. Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the end of the law. The law is no longer our guardianship. Paul will say this in a later letter to the Romans, chapter 10. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And we heard it earlier in chapter 3, here in Galatians. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But Jesus is, in fact, the one who fulfilled the law. As such, he was not under a curse, but he became a curse for us when he was hung on the cross so that he might take our punishment, what the guardian of the law would put on us is put on Christ, even though he had not broken the law, that we might in fact be redeemed. Jesus is the one person, if you wish, under the guardianship of the law who reached maturity. He reached the point at which the, longer, the law is no longer necessary. The rest of us, but particularly God's people, Israel, they were still under the authority of the law because they had not yet learned their lesson. All of this leads to the next story, and that is the story of faith. Look, if you would, at verses 26 and following. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
This is the story of faith. But before we get to that, we need to perhaps review a bit. How has Paul used faith thus far? It is worth noting that he uses the word faith uh, once in chapter 1, three times in chapter 2. Here we are in chapter 3. It is used 12 or 13 times. In chapter 4, it's not mentioned at all. In chapter 5, it is mentioned twice. And in chapter 6, only once. So this is, if you wish, if you want to know what faith is, this is the place to look. Just as what is the law, the purpose of the law, this is it, chapter 3. You will notice that Paul uses faith in three different ways. First of all, Abraham's faith, that Abraham believed God's promise. He is seen as the man of faith, verse number 9 of chapter 3. Secondly, he uses it in a general sense of trusting, of believing. Verse number 9, for example, those who have faith, those who trust, those who believe. Okay. Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. But the third way is when he speaks of the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, that Jesus did what he was called to do. He was faithful. We saw this back in chapter 2. We know that a person isn't made righteous by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because no one can be made righteous by the works of the law. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in my body, I live by faith, indeed by the faithfulness of God's Son, who loved me and gave himself for me. I think this all leads back to what we saw in verses 23 and 25. Before faith came. What does that mean? Before faith came. In verse 25, now that faith has come. If you think in terms of the story of the promise, this is speaking of the coming of Christ. Now that faith has come. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the one who came and who was faithful. So, before faith, this faith came, now that faith has come, it refers to the messianic event. It refers to the incarnation, Jesus coming into the world. He is the fulfillment of the promise. Abraham believed God, and it was considered, it was credited to him as righteousness. Jesus has come into the world. It is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to him. Before I go on, I want to clear something up because there has been confusion. You know, some people have said that what Paul is saying is the law was really, really hard. Impossibly hard. So God said, let's go to plan B. Let's do faith. Um, this, is, this is a statement from a book. While the old method, the law, was hard and difficult, the new the new way, that is faith, is easy and within the reach of all. Yeah, this is not what Paul is saying. Okay, this is not what he is saying. By the way, this assumes that we can have faith in our own, on our own. <laughs> we can't. It is the gift of God, Paul will tell the Ephesians. Okay? 
Faith must be seen in connection with the Jesus event. That is the coming of Jesus into the world. And so again, in verse number 23, before this faith came, we were being held prisoners by the law. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The coming of faith is tied to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the end of the law. You may remember that when Jesus died and said, it is finished, Matthew tells us that the temple, the the veil in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was ripped from top to bottom. It's the end of the law. Christ is the fulfillment. He is the end of the law so that there might be there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. By the way, he was not under the supervision of the law. Um, no guardian was necessary. He, in fact, had maturity. He had reached maturity. And therefore, unlike the rest of us, did not require guardianship. So end of story. The law in that regard as a guardian is finished. Jesus fulfilled the promise that was made to Abraham. So if you look at verse number 26, through Jesus the promise is fulfilled. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ It goes on a very powerful statement. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. A son under a guardian has no legal status as such. He is, in fact, no different from a slave. Even though everything belongs to him? No. He is still under the authority of the guardian until he reaches a certain point in which he no longer is, and then he becomes, if you wish, a full-fledged man, becomes a citizen. So if you look at chapter 4, because we're going to go into chapter 4 now, verse number 1, What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. To become a son, one must believe in Jesus, who is the Messiah. The law cannot convey this status to you. No one can do this because we are under a curse. But there was one son who fulfilled the promise, that is Jesus, and by trusting in him, in his faithfulness, we become the sons of God. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, you're going to say, well, no, I'm a child of Abraham, I'm in. It's like, no. You become a son of God through faith in Christ. If you're a Gentile, you become a son of God by putting your faith in the Messiah. And you demonstrate that by being obedient. And this is where verse number 27 comes in. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. 
one, one paraphrase has it this way, you are all children of God through the faithfulness of the Messiah Jesus because as many of you as were baptized into the Messiah have clothed yourselves with the Messiah. It is interesting, why does Paul point to baptism as sort of the signifier that we are the sons of God? Two things come to mind. First is what he wrote to the Romans, and this would be some years later in chapter 6, that when one is baptized, one identifies with Jesus. That is, his death, burial, and resurrection. And in immersion, a person identifies with him that they are buried in the likeness of Christ's death, and then they are raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Again, this is from Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order, just as, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the, glory, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. We know, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Having been plunged into the waters of baptism, one is, in fact, identifying with Jesus the Messiah. And is, if you wish, being clothed in him in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is a reenactment, if you wish, of the sacrifice of Jesus. That is, he was put to death, he was buried, and then he was resurrected. But there's a second reason, I think, that Paul mentions this. It's the story of the Exodus. Our Exodus. We went through uh, part of Colossians earlier, and we saw that, in fact, in the New Testament, the language of redemption is the language of Exodus. Delivered from slavery, redeemed by the hand of God, and coming into covenant with God. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes something that to me is quite fascinating. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were under, all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, we all know the story of the Red Sea, that it parted and Israel went through. Baptism is not the thing that comes to mind. We don't see that as baptism. But Paul does. It is, in fact, a prefiguring of baptism, passing through the waters, passing through the Red Sea. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is what Paul writes to the Colossians. Our salvation is the new exodus. And baptism, in a sense, is saying, yes, I identify with Jesus, but also it's like, yeah, just like Israel passed through the Red Sea, in baptism, I have been redeemed, I've been delivered from slavery, and I am now a child of God. By the way, the Exodus was the fulfillment, partial fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. 
Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Who got to share in that promise? The children of Israel. The promise made to Abraham that they would be delivered, they got to, they got to share in the benefit of that. But in the new exodus, it isn't simply for the Jews. It is for all those who will put their faith in the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. So Paul will say, there's no Jew, there's no Greek. Okay, so ethnicity is not the issue. Economic status is not the issue. Slave or free? No. Gender is not the issue. Male or female? Okay. We are all one in Christ. You may remember that Paul had a confrontation with Peter about this whole thing, that Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles till the Jews came up and then he separated. And Paul's like, this is wrong. It's hypocrisy. We are all one in Christ. Just a side note, um, I've mentioned this in the past many times. There is a difference between unity and uniformity. We are one in Christ. There is unity, but we're not all the same. We're not uniform. That is to say, all Christians of all times, of all places, must be exactly alike. No. Um, one might say, well, wait a minute. Paul says there's no you know, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. It seems like we're all the same. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there's no division. There is to be unity in the body, and we are not all the same. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So being a Jew, sorry, but it doesn't really count, okay? If you belong to Jesus, then you are a child of Abraham. You are the, you are the recipient of the promise that God made to Abraham. Um, Let me read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. What I am saying is that as long as, a slave, as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So, until your father says, you know, okay, when you turn 18, when you turn 19, at whatever point, you are under the authority of the slave. And so there's no difference. Okay? You still have the status, the legal status of being a minor. You have not reached your majority. You are, in fact, a minor. And so the guardian is to supervise you, to discipline you, to control you, to restrain your behavior. Okay? It's a metaphor for what it means, in fact, to be a human being. We are under the guardianship of the law. Even if we don't have a law, we know in our hearts when we do something wrong. But the law has been given so that we might know. So anyway, let's keep reading. Chapter 4, verse 3. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, 
to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. What does this all mean? First of all, the law is a preparatory stage. Okay? So when you are a child, you are under the law, if you wish. Okay? The law came way after the promise. Okay? The promise came first. Okay? The law shows us that we are sinners. It is incapable of giving us life. It is not life-giving. And in fact, it imprisons us, and we need to, to be liberated. Again, the ESV, I think, is clearer here. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Um, The NIV has basic principles. Secondly, the Galatians, and we who come after, belong to the time when the inheritance has been fully realized, when the fullness of time had come. The time had fully come. God sent his Son. And it was to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of, of sons. Um, if you're familiar with this passage at all, outside the NIV, you may be surprised that the NIV does not use the word adoption. Almost every other translation does. So that you might receive the, the adoption as sons. This is important. Both Jews and Gentiles need to be adopted into God's family. The Jews aren't God's sons automatically. They must be adopted, and Gentiles as well. And when you are adopted, you have the full right as sons. The idea of becoming a son of God is something we find in the Gospels. We hear it, first of all, from John the baptizer when he was out there preaching and baptizing people and the religious people came out and said, you know, we want to see what's going on here. And um, he said to them, you brood of vipers, (laughs) you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. God made the promise to Abraham. And the Jews are like, yep, we're his descendants. We are the descendants of Abraham. And John's like, yeah, that, you need to repent. You need, in fact, to be adopted into the family of God. I think John doesn't know this at that point, but that is what we come to. And then in John chapter 8, Now, the Jews challenged Jesus. I've always found this fascinating. To the Jews who had believed on him. Okay, these aren't the Pharisees and the Sadducees, his opponents. These are the people who had believed on him. Jesus said, if you hold my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Familiar enough. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, and have never been slaves of anyone How can you say that we shall be set free? That's parenthetically. Really, you've never been slaves before? Uh, Read the book of Exodus, okay? Uh, 
And by the way, who's in charge right now? The Romans? Okay, anyway. Um, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is what Paul is saying in Galatians. It is through adoption that you become the sons of God. And the promise to Abraham is fulfilled. You are the beneficiaries of that. By the way, I I have to mention John chapter 1. Yet to all who received him, he came into his own, his own did not receive him, but to those who received him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become the sons of God. So to be a Jew doesn't mean you're a son of God. And the guys from Jerusalem, that's kind of what they're saying. And Paul says, that's simply not the case. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus fulfilled the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. It's all relational, that we might become sons. I I want to be careful here. I think the language we use oftentimes of being a Christian is quite impersonal. Oh, I got saved. I was born again. And the idea that, no, I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God. God is my father. I am his son or daughter. It is, in fact, very relational, and I think we lose sight of that. And if we do, then we need to come to chapter 4 here, where we read that, in fact, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Abba is the word for Father, but it is one of great affection. It is one of endearment. God makes you his son, you're his child, and you can call him Abba. Papa, if you wish. Daddy. A term of affection. It is relational. It's not like, I'm saved. I've got it made. It is, in fact, you're now a child of God. No longer a slave, but a son. And an heir. Let's wrap this up. At the end of chapter 3, Paul has finished, I, I would say, with the various stories. Um... And now in chapter 4, he will begin to make the application. But you should notice and mark something that is of critical importance. Because one would think that after all Paul has said in chapters 1, 2, and 3, that in fact we would be hearing application about faith and justification. You are to have faith. You are now justified. And we do not find either word in chapter 4, and faith only a couple times in chapter 5 and only once in chapter 6. So it's like, Paul, what, what are you doing? You're telling us all these stories. What is the purpose? You're telling us your story. You're telling us about Abraham, about the curse, about the promise, about the law, about faith. And then you talk about the new exodus, baptism. Paul, what are you up to? It's right there. And we might miss it if we're not looking for it, perhaps even if we are looking for it. It is the key to any theological discussion. It is the key to any discussion of faith. Do you see it? It's in verse number six. 
Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. What is the key? What is the answer? It is the triune God. It is Trinity. Look at verse number six. We are the sons of God. God the Father sent this Holy Spirit, his spirit of his son, Jesus, who now we can call him Abba, Father. To be declared right in the sight of God is important. To trust in the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah is important. But more important than all of this is the reality of who God is. Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the true God. Far too often people today speak of God simply as God and and don't think about the fact that He is Father, Son, and Spirit. We may confess and say, and as we did in our hymns today, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Holy God, Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. Um, One might say, Damon, you're making a big deal about this. By the way, I would say that the men from Jerusalem, yeah, they don't believe in the Trinity. Okay. They believe in God, but they certainly don't believe in Jesus. And about the Spirit is sort of iffy about that. Okay. One might say, well, Damon, why make a big deal about this? What difference does it make? I would say it makes all the difference. We say that God is love. But the only way that God is love is if God is Trinity, that the Father loves the Son, who loves the Spirit, who loves the Father. We find them, in fact, in union. We speak of having a relationship with God. I would say that's only possible because there's already a relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's not as though God is this monolithic thing, almost impersonal being, and, and suddenly it's like, oh, I think I want to have sons and daughters. He and God the Father has, in fact, been in relationship with God the Son and with God the Holy Spirit. If we do not begin our thinking with God as Trinity, I feel we will lose our way. And the reality of what Jesus has done for us becomes greatly diminished. God the Father sent his Son. And the Spirit, he's given us the Spirit whereby we can say to God, Father, Abba, Father. If we do not rest our thinking on Trinity, then we will miss the truth of who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, and what he will do. And we will see things as quite impersonal when the reality is it's all very relational. God has made us, he has adopted us as his sons and daughters. And we can call him Father. Let's pray together. Father, we've covered a lot of things today. but May we see the heart of things, that you are Father, there is God the Son, the Lord Jesus, and your Holy Spirit whom you've sent to live in our lives. The law has shown us where we have fallen short time and time and time again. It cannot give us life. But you made a promise centuries, millennia ago to Abraham. And you fulfilled that promise in Jesus. He was faithful. 
we put our faith in him and in his obedience. And so it doesn't matter our ethnicity, our gender, our economic status, where we were born, where we live. It is by trusting in the faithful Messiah who gave his life that we might have life, that we come to become your sons and daughters. And it's not primarily about getting to heaven when we die. It is about the reality that we are your children. And what an astounding reality that is. Thank you for bringing us together today. Again, we remember our dear sister Lonnie and ask that you would touch her. You would be her strength. You would be her health. Be with Dan as well. Thank you for bringing us together today. We hope by your grace to see Tess as she comes back this week. Keep us as we walk through this world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.